one of the beautiful things about being an entrepreneur or just thinking like one is like you, you're, you're literally like creating new things in the world and creating new desires. And one of the reasons I'm a little bit, it's not that I think there's anything wrong with market research, but one of the reasons we have to like temper our fascination with market research is that it only measures like what already exists. If you would have put out market research or done a study, I don't know when podcasts came out, like, you know, 15 years ago or something like that, and asked people if they wanted to listen to a two hour long audio conversation, I think very many would have said no. What's up, guys? Welcome to another episode of the Augzoro podcast. And if you're listening to this or seeing this on YouTube, then you are on the public feed. This means you don't have access to the full video versions of the Augzoro podcast, and you aren't getting bonus episodes of my other podcast, The Aux, on topics like Bruce Lee, Bitcoin, the COVID lab leak, and more. In exchange for your hard-earned or inherited money, we take both, no discrimination here, you'll get two bonus episodes per month of The Ox, which ends up being three plus hours of premium podcast content. The full video version of every episode of The Oxoro Podcast so you don't have to watch a thumbnail on YouTube. Subscriber-only solo episodes, raw notes and research, bonus writings, access to all premium archived episodes, and more. Become a premium member today by going to auxoro.supercast.tech so you don't have to hear any more of these annoying ass pitches now or in the middle of an episode. And trust me, they only get more annoying. Pitches are for bitches. Go to auxoro.supercast.tech today to support quality content from independent creators. Link can also be found in the episode notes. I love you guys. Enjoy the show. This time, I sit down with Luke Burgess. Luke is a builder, an author, and an educator. He wrote the book, Wanting the Power of Mimetic Desire in Everyday Life. And it would not be an exaggeration to say that this book changed the way I think about everything I've ever wanted, everything I want, and everything I will want. If you are interested in why we want the things we want, Luke's book and this conversation are for you, if you want. Also, go ahead and sign up for Luke's newsletter, Mimetic Mondays. That is Mimetic Mondays. Here he gives you a mimetic idea, an anti-mimetic response, and a quote from another thinker. Here's a little preview sample from last Monday, July 19th. On Mimetic Monday, Luke wrote about taking a break from the creativity of others, and he writes, quote, take a creative fast. If you're going to embark on a creative project of any kind, writing a song, a book, a paper, making a product, take a creative fast for at least a week preferably longer before starting. For at least a week before you begin, look at no other competitive products, no other writing, no other models. The more we obsessively check ourselves against models, even if our intent is to differentiate ourselves from them, the more we end up shaping our pursuit in the long run. Taking a creative fast means some spiritual distance from models. It doesn't mean that your work won't be influenced by models, but if you do it right, you'll gain the space you need to interact with them without them being on top of you end quote. Now, in this episode, Luke and I get into why he felt relieved when a deal worth millions of dollars with Zappos fell through, the foundations of why we want what we want, the influence of mimetic desire, 
on cryptocurrency and breakups. You know that feeling when you think you're over someone for good, and then you see a photo of them on Instagram with someone else and all the doubt starts rushing back into your mind. Should I have left this person? Why did they leave me? What is she doing with this slightly worse looking version of me? No way this dude gets her off with that bulge. You know, those feelings? Yeah, that has a lot to do with mimetic desire. And also we get into why you should go back and read the Gospels of the Catholic Church, how love and mimesis interact, and more. Without further ado, please enjoy this deep dive with one of the most forefront thinkers of mimetic desire on the planet, Luke Burgess. All right, Luke, thank you for joining me today on the podcast. I really do appreciate it. Hey, Zach, good to be with you, man. So I'm in the middle of reading your book now, Wanting, and you describe a period of time in your life where you are a startup founder and you have a deal that you're working on closing with the founder of Zappos, Tony Shea. And it sounds like it's an extremely hectic and also beautiful, crazy time in your life. And there's a moment where the deal doesn't go through. And you describe it as this relief that this, you wouldn't expect it from someone that had just been through that process where they're a startup founder, they're trying to get their company acquired. One of the biggest companies in the world in the space offers to, or you think they're about to make an offer to acquire your company and the deal falls apart and you describe a sense of relief in the book. What was the source of that sense of relief and what did you learn from it? I had no idea what the source was at the time. It took me years to finally understand that. Uh, It wasn't until an encounter with the thought of Rene Girard and understanding mimetic desire until I was really able to make sense of that. At the time, you know, I was devastated briefly. And then this feeling of relief kind of washed over me. And I'd realized that I'd been driven by some kind of a mysterious, like hidden force that had been driving me to pursue all kinds of things for like where I wanted to go to college. And then I I got to college and then I, I wanted to transfer and then I wanted to work on Wall Street and then I wanted to become an entrepreneur and started several different companies in the span of five years. And I just always felt like there was there was kind of like no end to it. I was very unsatisfied. And I think the the feeling of the deal falling through was was relief and a sense of freedom that I'd somehow been freed from the the chains of like unhealthy mimetic desire, right? Like constantly finding like new models of desire that were causing me to pursue something. And then once I got it, I would just kind of like throw it away and move on to the next thing. And I realized that if had the deal actually gone through with Tony, then that cycle would have continued and I'm not quite sure where it would have ended. I would have joined a a company where I was kind of like an outsider. I wasn't really that great of a culture fit for Zappos. I would have continued to like try to conform myself to fit some mold, but I wasn't really that comfortable in. So in a way that, you know, that the deal falling through was a blessing in disguise, like Many things in life are that we initially like consider, you know, tragedies or or disillusioning things. They like wake us up and cause us to step back and ask questions that we were like too busy to ask. And and that's what that experience did for me. And it sort of freed me from like the the constant 
I mean, who knows? I could still be there today and and be totally miserable, like basically working for Jeff Bezos. You know what I mean? Like, who knows? Who knows where that would have ended, right? So, so I think we we often like only understand our lives like when we're years later, sometimes like looking back, and then we find the meaning in those circumstances. Yeah, it's a great way to start the book because you lead you lead the reader in one direction, and then all of a sudden you're describing this sense of relief that doesn't seem to align with the buildup of an experience like almost having your your startup acquired and i was trying to think of anything that i could compare it to in my own life I, i've never been an inside man in the startup vc culture but i have spent 15 years of my life trying to become a professional baseball player and and starting to play in middle school and then eventually playing in college and ending up not having that happened because of a, a combination of circumstances. And I did feel this weird sense of relief when I came to the conclusion that my baseball career was over. It, it was definitely a, a relief mixed with devastation, mixed with confusion, mixed with God knows what, but there definitely was a decent amount of relief in there. And I think it just came from this sense of letting go. Like, like I, I had this thing in my life that I'd worked 15 years towards that I dedicated four to eight hours a day, depending on the day with practice, lifting and all this stuff. And while I gained so much from it, I realized there were all these things in my life that I could now do that I didn't have time to do. And letting go of that goal did in a weird way, like, it, it it was like uh, destruction and relief at the same time. It's hard to describe. And from what you write about that that moment in the book where you find out the the deal falls through, that that that's probably the closest thing I had in my life that could compare to that in, in any way. Yeah, I mean, I think the example of of an of an athlete having some door close is a really good one. I had a similar experience with baseball. I don't think I made it nearly as far as you did, but um. There's like a general principle there. And it's like, if you have like three different paths that you could take in life and you're having a real hard time, like figuring out like where to go. And then like two of the doors like close for you, like, like out, out of your control, like two of the doors just close. It's kind of like a signal, like, oh, okay. Like my decision-making just got a lot easier. I'm going to go through the one door that's open. You know, So like a lot of times, like things just happen that are like outside of our control and we can like kick against the goad and like question it, but it's like, maybe, maybe I should just like listen and, and like take this and, and, and pivot. And that's kind of what happened for me. Right. I, I, I realized that I was given an opportunity, right? Like sometimes we can see these things as threats or as these bad things that happen to us, but they're also, you can just look at the other side of it. And it's like an, it's an opportunity to do something else and to look in a place where we may have not been looking. And I don't know what, what the pivot was for you. But for me, one of the opportunities was I, I basically was like, you know what, the, that door just closed and it's not going to open back up again, probably. So maybe I'll just use this as an opportunity to take a few months off and take a vacation, do some traveling, take like a mini sabbatical, immerse myself, like read a bunch of books that I've, I've been wanting to read for a long time, travel to some places I've really wanted to go and just kind of like relax. So I kind of like gave myself this gift and it's been like the gift that keep that that's kept on giving. That was a long time ago at this point, right? So, you know, I, I didn't I didn't realize it at the time, right? But it 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 was definitely one of the best things that's ever happened to me. 
for me, I was fortunate enough to become disillusioned with baseball while I was still playing towards the end of my career. So the last half season, I was coming off of a couple surgeries and I, I, yeah, I had this period where I was basically sitting around on my couch in the, the off-campus baseball house down in Richmond, Virginia. And thinking about what I wanted to do. And I, and I was super bored because I couldn't do anything in practice. I, w- I was going to class on a, on a grad school schedule, which is all night classes. It, it's, it's, it's not very demanding. And so I was filling my time with researching music artists and, and calling music artists and, and talking to them and writing articles about them. And, and that eventually led to podcasting because I there was a bridge where I, I was publishing articles and then I realized I should be recording these conversations and then started by speaking with music artists. And so for me, the pivot was a combination of boredom. And then once I was healthy, showing up to compete, which is something that I've always wanted to do, not being nearly as good as I was because of a couple elbow surgeries where I just knew my body was not going to react. And so I felt myself not being excited towards the end of showing up to a baseball field and competing. I still loved hanging around all of my friends and hanging out before practice, putting in the work. Like I genuinely enjoyed the, the drilling aspect of baseball, but then competing, I had a couple experiences where I was warming up in the bullpen and did not feel any excitement whatsoever. Like I didn't, the fact that I didn't feel any uncertainty about what could happen. This could go totally wrong or it could go totally right. I just didn't feel any surge of anything. My emotions were just like flat lines. That was to me a signal that it was time to move on from baseball. Ah, so you were a pitcher. That's, um, it's kind of a scary, weird feeling. I mean, I don't know. I think most people don't really pay attention to their emotions, especially men. You know what I mean? Like, to like know, to like be able to even recognize that is like a huge, like a huge step in itself. And I recognize the same thing. It was like, why am I like not excited to go into my office? Like I, I, I had, because the, you know, these feelings, the writing was on the wall long before the deal fell apart. I talk about that in the book. Like I had already started to sort of lose passion and I felt kind of like dead inside. Like I wasn't excited. And I was like, something's like wrong with that because I actually have a growing company. I'm my own boss. I have like all of the things that I wanted just a few years ago, yet I I just feel like flatlined and I, I don't know what's up with that. But I was so hanging on to this sort of like sense of identity or something like that and driven by mimetic desire so strongly at that point where I I wasn't able to like freely kind of like let go and do something about the problem myself. Like I wasn't able to make the change myself. And I think like paying attention to when that's happening and then, and then ask like, why is it happening on an emotional level is really important. I mean, it was different in that situation for me and for you, because we were dealing with, you know, in my case, a company, in your case, a sport and and possibly a career, you know, it'd be different if I like, you know, if, if I woke up next to my wife someday and was like, I don't feel, I don't feel anything. I don't feel like I love this person anymore. Then that's a different situation. Then it's like, well, I'm going to fight through that. Right. And I'm going to, you know, I made a commitment and, you know, love is not always about the feelings, but when it happens in, in these kinds of a situation, I do think it's a little bit different. And then there's like a choice to make. It's like, 
do I fight through this and come and come out on the other side and like regain the excitement? Or is it actually the sign of something that's like true and real that I need to pay attention to? And that's kind of, that's the tricky part. So for me, it was the deal that actually gave me the, the signal that I wasn't able to figure out on my own, if that makes sense. Hey guys, I mentioned there would be annoying interruptions on the public feed and here it is. I'm playing around. I don't actually want this to be annoying. I want this to be an enjoyable break from the episode to give you a taste of what you're missing on Auxoro Premium. Here's a sneak preview of a clip behind the paywall where my brothers and I talk about the legacy of Avicii. I could see someone like Avicii being really easily swayed to continue to do the show. Maybe his friends are even guilt tripping him into it or, or they're trying to make things. Well, that's what they were doing in the, that documentary. Yeah, they're trying to make things seem better than they actually are. We're like, oh, it's were not, his, were know, his friends financially, like, or were they financially mm -hmm. compensated? Were they rewarded by making him go more? Yeah, well, it was all people that worked for him or he probably had his friends just like come on the tour. I'm sure they were all making money with yeah. him. But yeah, yeah, a lot of his um, friends worked with him. Yeah, but yeah, the whole thing, I mean, that was just really sad. I'm sure that happens all the time because he, he asked that. He was literally asking them to stop and saying he had like mental health issues and he had like pancreatitis too, like yeah. me, I think. And he just... uh they, like, from drinking? They, in the documentary, they just showed his friends keep saying like, no, no, keep going because they, they were just all pushing him to keep performing. And that could have led to him like dying too, which is yeah. sad. If you're making, say, let's say you're making 100K a show and your friends, you're at, when you go to, when you go to managers, when you talk about people that are handling your travel, whatever it is, your friends are making thousands of dollars a show off of you. And they don't have the best intentions. You may bring medical problems or, or things to their attention. And you're like, and they're like, oh, like you're throwing up blood. It's not that big of a deal, or oh, it's probably just like a stomach ache or something with the the pancreatitis. And then you go on for longer and longer and longer, and then you end up in the hospital right. or with really bad health problems. Well, I think that's a danger from people around you making a percentage of whatever you make. Like they're not working for themselves; they're working like the more money that person that celebrity makes and the more money they make so they're just gonna push that for unless they're i mean even family sometimes like screws you like uh game people are, had that story yeah. about his brother but like oh, yeah. yeah besides your family for the most part everyone's probably just gonna push you to make more and more money so they make more and more money Thank you for listening to the preview. Go to auxoro.supercast.tech to gain access to two bonus episodes per month, like the one you just heard, the full video version of the Auxoro podcast, and more. It's $5.25 per month when you sign up for the year. Now, back to the episode. Yeah, it does make sense. Did your study of mimetic desire and realization of mimetic desire in your own life, did that coincide with you being willing to step away from the startup world? Because a lot of people will continue to work at something that they are become dis disillusioned by. So they're, they're in that emotionally flatlined state. And I imagine there are people that continue to do work in, in startup world or, or any industry, even in, in sports, there are guys that, that hang on long past the excitement of showing up to the field because of some sense of I should be doing this or I've put in the work 10 years prior. So I, I need to keep going. Was it that study of a medic desire that allowed you to, was it the experience that allowed you to 
realign yourself? What, what do you think led up to you being able to make choices that were long-term fulfilling after the startup deal fell apart? I mean, there's a really important distinction to make there. Like I have the greatest respect for like a, like a great athlete who, you know, might lose some passion for the game for a while and then, and then pushes through and it's just like becomes the best and just shows up, right? Like, you know, most of life is like showing up, right? I use the case of like, you know, emotion and in, in like a marriage, right? I mean, clear situation, right? Where you don't just like cut and run because, you, you know, you don't feel certain things. In my particular case, though, I had like the, the luxury. Um, I was at a point in my life where I, I knew that I think we, there's times in life that are like pivotal moments. And I knew that it was a time for me to step, step back and just at least take stock. Like I hadn't like committed, right? I, I hadn't like made a commitment to that company. Like this is the this is the one. Like I've committed to my shareholders. I've committed to my employees. Like I, I hadn't done that. So actually that allowed me to feel like I didn't have this like sense of responsibility to like teammates or it was my company. And I was like, I don't want to live the rest of my life like miserable and and do and, and continuing to do this. So like I feel like I have a responsibility to figure out what's going on right now so that, you know, the, the next thing that I do, I don't leave after a couple of years. That's actually really irresponsible if I, if I do that. It wasn't necessarily my understanding of mimetic desire that led me to take that little sabbatical because I didn't really know. I'd never even heard the word term mimetic desire at that point. It was more like a gut check. It was a gut feeling that led me to to step away for a while. And I mean, I eventually like went back in, right? I mean, I, I now, you know, back in the startup world and I teach entrepreneurship, but it was kind of like, sometimes you have to step, you have to like step out of the cave in, in order to like go, go back into it and, and see things that you didn't see before. And that, that was a really important process for me. It's a tough and a, a weird decision to make. And, and I can speak from the the athlete side of it, where I definitely had part of me that was questioning, do I need to work harder? Because I have the utmost respect for guys that, you know, have their career minor leaguers or semi-pro baseball players that maybe get a shot at the major leagues when they're 37 or something like that, end up having a five-year major league career. So part of me was definitely questioning, okay, do I just need to buckle down and work harder? And basically work myself back into the excitement of baseball. And there's no manual for that sort of stuff. So it, it depends on each specific person. But, but I came to the conclusion that it just felt right. I, I don't know how to describe it. Maybe you had a similar uh, experience where you kind of like stepped back and you were listening to a bunch of different people say a bunch of different things and you had to make the decision, okay, do I just work myself back into the excitement of wanting to do this company or, or do I step away or what do I do? And for me, it was, I thought about making a living off of my body and knowing all the, the joys, but also darkness that comes with that. And for me, I just wasn't willing to do that. Other guys are, and they stick with it for, you know, 10, 15, 20 years. Was there any sort of, was there part of the decision-making process or, or types of feedback you were taking in, seeking out certain people that helped you decide whether to try to work yourself back into the excitement in, in that specific area of your life or step away from that specific company, which, which you ultimately did? 
Yeah, no doubt. I mean, there were really important mentors in my life at the time and, you know, which is, I'm, I'm a, a huge proponent of mentorship and, and having mentors in, in your life because we often can't see things about ourselves and our lives because we're too close to ourselves. And like, we need other people that are willing to be super honest with us. So good friends that are willing to tell the truth. Like there are very few people that are willing to tell you the truth about anything. Like one of the uh, eye-opening things about writing a book is like, you send it out to 10 people and like, oh, it's just great. Like, like the shittiest, like roughest draft. And it's like, no, it's not. <laughs> like, you, you know, it's like, it's hard to find like one person that was like willing to tell me the truth. So that, that was really important. Another little exercise that I did, I mean, and it sounds to me like you looking back now, like you're happy with the decision that you made to step away. Right. And, and I was in hindsight too. One of the little um, exercises that I did, is actually a great book that has this tactic in it called Designing Your Life, uh, written by a couple of professors at Stanford. And I sort of used, I, I did something from, from their kind of guidebook, although I hadn't read it, I just kind of came up with this on my own. And uh, I kind of like did the exercise of imagining like three very different paths that I could take in life. One would be I continue the, I continue entrepreneurship. One would be like, I like go become an academic. And then the other one is like, I just do something like radically different, make music and, and write and travel the world and like get married in the next couple of years, right? Like these like three totally different paths. And then sitting with those and like projecting myself three, four, five years out in the future and taking a day and sitting with each one of those options, like over a three day period. It's like today I'm a startup entrepreneur and, you know, and I sit with that. And then like the next day, it's like today I'm pursuing some hobbies that I have that I really like. And I'm going to imagine my life as if I were just doing that. And then the next day, it's the third option. Doing that is almost like a way to, to kind of project yourself into the future and like understand you gain some insight into like what your life might be like and how that might feel. I mean, our imaginations are powerful things. So that, that's, that was a way for me to, to gain some real insight into like, Look, if I if I go down the road of that that I'm currently on, and and you know, let's say the Zappos deal does go through, let's say they come back and they change their minds, I realized very clearly that I wouldn't be happy there. It was it was very apparent to me that I wouldn't be happy, and I needed to make a pivot. So I think that's like one helpful thing that I've continued to do that throughout my life. It's just a, a basic like tool of discernment is sitting with those things, thinking about how will that life make me feel three or four or five years in the future? And there are some things that reveal themselves to be like pretty superficial really, really quickly when you do that exercise, right? Like imagining yourselves like on a bus getting shipped around to like various little cities, you know, playing minor league baseball or something like that. Yeah. And then imagine yourself doing that for 10 years. Uh, and then you just have to ask like, well, what would that prevent me from doing? Like what's the opportunity cost of living that kind of a life? I like that because it demands creativity from your imagination. So you have to be able to project yourself five, 10 years forward on a path. And there may not be a, a set path or super clear path. So you kind of have to take parts from your imagination and fill in what you imagine it to be. And then you also need a dose of realism, it sounds like, for that to be effective. Because I could also imagine myself sitting on a bus for 10 years in, in the minor leagues, or I could tell myself that I'm going to make it in four or five and I'm going to be flying around on jets five years, 10 years from now. And so 
I like that. I've done that in in small ways and I, and I've never done it purposely before, but looking back, I can see some periods in my life and especially the the transition from being a baseball player to not being a baseball player where thinking about things in the future and being realistic about it definitely helped me feel fulfilled in the decisions I was making today. Yeah. You know, I wonder there's, there's kind of a variation of that exercise, which is like, you can kind of project out three different versions of each path, you know, and then like kind of do like the weighted probability of each one, right? Like one, I make it to the major leagues. Well, the probability of that is like 1% or less or something. And you're right. You have to have like a lot of honesty with yourself or be talking to somebody who does. And then you kind of, so, so each path can have like various like gradations of it. Yeah. So, I mean, honesty is, I, I think really, really key, but there's something to be said, like one of the beautiful parts of life is like, you know, we, we, we don't know, we don't see the path and we wake up every day and like wonderful things can happen. And there's something to be said about hope and, and pursuing a dream. That's a really great thing. It's just a matter of knowing what we want to commit ourselves to. So I know you haven't got to the end of the book yet, but one of the, the, the last chapter in the book is kind of like, you, you know, you, you find your single greatest desire and then you begin to kind of prioritize them and, and all of the other ones kind of fall, fall into place underneath it. And identifying what that single greatest desire is, is like, that's like what life, that's the work of life, right? It's like, you don't know the purpose of life, what's well, to find the purpose. And, and that, that involves like, if, if you do discern, if you do find that that is the single greatest desire, then you can do some crazy things. And I, 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 you know, I'm, I'm a, I'm a fan of people that do crazy things and I mean, that's how like people change the world. It's a matter of discernment. Yeah. I, I like, a, I like how the book is also a buildup of the different levels of mimetic desire and the ways that we go through it individually. And as a society, I just got to the scapegoat mechanism. And so I'm excited to, to go through that whole section of the book for someone who has no idea what mimetic desire is and they've never heard the term before how would you describe why we want what we want what what is it that mimetic desire is from you studying it so long studying Rene Girard and the father of mimetic desire why would you say we want what we want so mimetic desire is a phrase coined by the the French thinker Rene Girard who sort of identified the fundamental structure of human desire as mimetic, meaning imitative, that humans, the vast majority of our desires come from imitating other people's desires because we're social creatures. So we we unconsciously catch desires by contagion, pretty much from the moment that we're born. You know, like we are, our parents are models of desire for us powerful models of desire. And then as we, we reach, you know, adolescence, we have friends. And so Girard's finding was that desire is, is generated and shaped through these relationships and this, through this social process. And he said the idea that our desires just like arise spontaneously within us, he called that the romantic lie, right? It's this, this romantic notion that we have is like hyper individualist people, hyper rational people. We kind of like believe that 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 myth, and and it's denying the social nature of desire. So, mimetic desire is 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 wanting what other people want because they want it. So it's the idea that when somebody else wants something, especially if it's 
the right person, like a, a, a person that, you know, for whatever reason we respect, we admire, we think that they have some special insight that we don't have and in, into what's desirable. If when they begin to want something, it immediately like imbues that, that thing that they want with some kind of like a special power over us. My fiance, Claire, when, when I started writing the book, she was like, this happens to me like all the time when I, I walk into like a consignment or, or, or like a cool, like old clothing store with my friend, Molly, who works on, on like Hollywood films. She's like the person that buys the clothes for, for the actors and actresses. And Claire's like, I walk into the store and there's like a thousand outfits and it's like overwhelming, but I always like tend to gravitate towards like the one or two or three that Molly thinks are just the best and, and the most desirable. And they like take on this, like all of a sudden they're the most important ones, you know, in, in, in the store because Molly's like a model of desire for her. And I see that in my own life, like all, all the time for like where I wanted to go to college to like the kind of career that I wanted to have. When I look back on it, there were, there were models for me for all of those things. Even, even while I kind of told myself, like I had all these objective reasons for why I wanted to work on wall street, for instance, it turns out that all of the reasons that I told myself, like how much it pays and the career track and everything were just kind of like lies that I told myself to cover up for the fact that the real reason I wanted to work on Wall Street when I graduated was because I was surrounded by a bunch of other people that did. And they, they affected me dramatically. I definitely started questioning my own desires right away as soon as I understood what mimetic desire was from the the introduction in the book and, and the the whole story with the deal falling apart with Zappos, I started to think about all the things that I convinced myself, all the desires that I convinced myself that spontaneously arose in my own life that, you know, I'm not susceptible to wanting something just because someone else wants it, just because I've seen it on a commercial or just because this is something that other people want in the, the podcasting space. And then I started to think about all of the things that fall into that and question my own, or still questioning, actively questioning my own desires now. And in a weird way, mimetic desire is the best sales point for the book, because as someone who's studied it for so long, I have to imagine that you would have asked yourself, do I really want to write this book? And do I need to write this book? Or do I just want to write it because other people are writing books and other people that want to say things do so in, in book form? And I was like, well, he must have really wanted to write this book because I imagine that was uh, part of the lead up to the book is do I even want to write this book in the first place? Totally. Yeah. Um, well, I mean, the, the truth is, I think it's, I think there's both. I mean, I think that mimetic desire was involved in why I wrote the book. And then there have been endless jokes about this, by the way, because I wrote a book about mimetic desire and like, you know, the, the only way that people will read it probably is through mimetic desire. Right. So it's like, I wrote a book about it, but I also have to like generate it in, in a positive sense. Right. So, I, I mean, we should be totally clear, like mimetic desire is not like a negative thing. Mimetic desire is neutral. It just it just is what it is, and we probably need more positive mimetic desire in the world, right? For like empathy and being able to have you know conversations with people that have different viewpoints than us. So it's just a neutral thing. It can be used in positive or negative ways. For me, the you know one of the reasons I I, I felt like I really needed to write the book was because I couldn't find a good intro to Gerard, and I was like, you know, I feel like this this thinking is really important, and a lot of people could benefit from it. But when people would ask me, like, well, what do I start with? 
I was really struggling to, to recommend any of the books because Gerard's not easy to read. You know, he's a French academic. He, he like, he's mind meltingly weird in his writing style. Um, if, if you, when, when you dive in, you'll know what I mean. And I digested it for such a long time. And I, and I felt like I could communicate it clearly. And believe me, if the book was out there, I wouldn't have written it. I mean, I, it was like sometimes with creative projects, like you just feel like I, I have to do this thing. And I'm worried that if I don't do it, like nobody else will. And then it's like a shit, maybe I'm like, one of the only people that can do this because, you know, Gerard wrote in the early sixties. And for some reason, nobody's, nobody's written a book that's, that's, that seems accessible. Why is that? Well, maybe it's just because he's just been in the academy and like, they're just not able to like, not write academic ease. You know, they just don't have the ability to do that. And I do think that's true. So it's not like it's one or the other, right? There's like, there's probably some emetic desire involved in terms of like me wanting to, to be an author and to reach people. And then there's, the, I, I think there's some good reasons also um, why I wrote the book. So it's not one or the other. I think like most, most of our motives as humans are relatively mixed, right? But it's just a matter of questioning them and examining them. That's a good point. Mimetic desire, mimesis, there's not a, a moral standing to it. It's, it's not positive or negative. You, you describe it as a, a force in the book that is present, whether we want to realize it or not. And we can create models for ourselves that harness desire, mimetic desire for long-term fulfillment, or we have terrible models and maybe we're not self-aware and we have experiences where mimetic desire has actually been part of us making very bad decisions. And it's weird and, and mind-blowing at the same time to recognize that there's there's a there's not just desire there's a reason why and how that desire comes into play and, and it's this force that goes back and forth and we can have we're all making touch points constantly with the decisions that we make by wanting something and by vocalizing that want and desire and by fulfilling it with action where a signal kind of these nodes walking around the earth signaling our desires to other people and that combines into the overall force of mimetic desire. So you can actually influence the outcomes and, and influence other people's decisions by simply having better desires or desires that are more fulfilling. Yeah. Yeah. And there are certain cases where, you know, like not having mimetic desire is, is a, is almost like a, a pathology. Um, let me give you an example. Like I had a friend who visited Calcutta and and spent some time um, at Mother Teresa's uh, house there with the missionaries of charity where they they care for extremely destitute, sick, poor people. My friend had was with a group of people, and there were a few of them and and they watched uh, people like bathing and and like washing the feet and caring for these these dying people in the last days of their life. She goes, I, was, I guess there was some particular member of, of the group she was referring to, but she was like, if you, if you witness that sort of like a desire to reach out to another human being and, and you see the love and you see the compassion and, and you're like not moved to, to like, you know, you're, you're like not, you don't catch some positive desire, right? For that, like, then like something's wrong with you, right? Like you, you want to, you want to have mimetic desire in that circumstance. And, you know, she reflected on it and she's like, you know, part of the problem with like being like super depressed 
or, or experiencing like ennui or, or something like that is like, you kind of like lose the, you lose desire and you lose the ability to, to, to kind of like desire, which is actually a really miserable place to be in, you know? So I thought that was kind of a beautiful, beautiful example of like how sometimes it's actually good to be mimetic. Yeah. I, uh, the past couple of days I had what I would have thought would be an extremely overall negative experience, which is renewing my passport. I, I'm actually flying out of the country on Friday and I realized that my passport was not valid about a week before. Oh, uh, dude, you just reminded me that I have to renew mine. I'm glad you caught it in time. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I was calling the passport agency and just constantly refreshing the the page to get the passport. And, and my girlfriend was as well, cause she's over in the Netherlands where I'm traveling. So we were both trying to get appointments and no luck, no luck, uh, getting appointments actually managed to get one, uh, about two weeks after my flight, but nothing before the flight on Friday. And I ended up being, uh, becoming more, grateful somehow and becoming more just wanting to be a better person through the experience because I went through the woe is me thing and I, and I was feeling so sorry for myself. And then I joined all these passport groups on Facebook where people that were going through the same exact thing as me were actively gifting away appointments that they couldn't use, or maybe it was in a city that was too far away. And everyone in this group, so over 2000 people in the group that I joined were just like in it to help other people get appointments and also help themselves get appointments. And I ended up driving up to Vermont because of a review that someone had left in the group where they said, you know, they're taking walk-ins, you don't need an appointment, drove back yesterday got a passport and I left a, a long review in the group this morning. And I was just like, wow, I, I want to, the, the fact that like I'm seeing all these other people want to help people. I don't leave reviews. Like I, I've never like left a, I might've left three comments on things in my life or just like a, a summary of my experience after the fact. I just haven't done that for better or worse. And then I got back into the group, left this long review, described my experience in Vermont for anyone else that was able to make it up there. Now that I'm thinking about it, the other people wanting to help other people in the group and wanting to get other people appointments. And then everyone trying to like work together being, oh, I have one in Houston. Like I can't use it. Anyone needs it for next Friday. Oh, I just went to this place. They have openings here, walk-ins now. Like that, that whole experience made me want to help other people. And a lot of it was because I was seeing everyone else doing the same thing. It's not like I'm this wonderful person. I was like, spending so much time in this group the whole day being like, wow, all these people are in a terrible situation and, and can't get a passport. And now everyone's being so nice. So that's making me also want to be kind to other people. Yeah. It's contagious, you know, desires are contagious. And that's one of the big takeaways for me coming into contact with Gerard. There's a lot of truth to that old saying where it's like you sort of like become like the five people that you're closest to, right? You, you end up becoming very similar because that's just the nature of desire, right? It's very contagious. I think there's even studies that like your incomes tend to be about the same and stuff like that. Yeah. You know, I, I think that's, that's like a beautiful story. And one of the, one thing I, I thought it was really important for me to try to do in the book is emphasize that mimetic desire is not bad. Traditionally in, in 
people that write about Gerard, he's kind of dark. He's kind of dark, right? And he talks a lot more about like the negative side of mimetic desire. Like it can cause people to be in like these endless cycles of, of just kind of like frustration. It leads to rivalry very often. It can lead to conflict between people who want the same things. Because, you know, it's kind of a natural step too. If, if you're catching your desires and adopting the desires of other people, then you're, you're in this kind of like never ending game competing for the same things that they want. And I didn't think that the, the positive aspects are, are talked about enough. So I, I, you know, I tell stories about how, you know, I sort of like had an unex, unexpected experience of somebody showing me extreme empathy that like instantly changed a relationship. Because when people do that for us, we want to do it back for them. And it's not, that's kind of sounds very similar to, to like what you experienced in the group, right? It's like crazy, like how you, it's like, I almost can't not do this um, just because of like the, you know, the, the, the people in the community that I'm a part of. And that's why it's so important, I guess, to be intentional about the communities that we're part of and the people that we surround ourselves with. So when I was in the startup world, I, I realized that I wanted certain things that were not you know, like not typical of, of entrepreneurs to want. Like I had this deep desire to just like study, read philosophy, study philosophy and to do some other things. And I wasn't like finding a model for that among like my, my peers. It was just like, you work 85 hours a week and you learn to code and that's all you do. And I was like, well, I don't know if that's really what I want. So I kind of had to be intentional about finding other people, surrounding myself with other people that were outside of that world in order to sort of like, it's hard to want something when, when like you don't have any help and when like nobody around, nobody else around you is also like pursuing the same things. So I was pretty intentional about, about finding some people in my life that were able to help me pursue those kinds of goals that were different. How were you able to find those models from either books or, or content or people for desires that were outside of the startup world for, for desires that you decided for yourself. I wanted to surround myself with people that think more like this and are providing a model outside of what I'm currently experiencing right now. What, what are the, the best ways which you did that? How did you run into those people? How did you meet those people? And if there are any specific examples of people that had a deep impact on your decision? Yeah, it's kind of a twofold process. Like one of them is you need to just put yourself in positions where you do have an opportunity to to meet those kinds of people. So it's kind of like, you know, if if somebody's like is looking to be in a, in a romantic relationship and they just sit in their house all day and then they wonder why they never meet anybody. It's like, well, maybe you should just go like <laughs> I don't know, like put your, put yourself in a position, right. To like be, be surprised and have serendipity work for you. You never know what can happen. Just like go stand on the sidewalk or something like that. Like, you know, you never know what can happen. So, yeah. so, so for me, it was like getting outside. Like if I, if I only stayed in the circles that I was running, if I only hung out in the places, you know, with my fellow kind of startup founders, I never would have done that. So I started putting myself in different situations. I started going to church at the time. That was, that was one place where I met some great people. I joined like some, some book clubs. Um, I did things that were kind of like non-traditional, right. For, for my peers to do. And that just like opened up the doors for me to let just like meet people. I sort of intentionally sought a few people out, some people that I, I wanted to be mentors I've had like shocking success in my life. I don't think it's, it's due to like anything 
special to me. I think it's just because I just do it um, by like writing cold emails to people and like asking for help. Like I think most people, I tell my students this all the time, like you would be shocked like how much people want to help you. Like if you think like, you know, I don't know, Adam Grant is like a super cool author and good guy, like just write him and it, chances are you'll get a response back. And that's how I met Tony Shea, actually. I sent Tony Shea a yeah. cold email and the two of us became like really good friends after a few years. I've just found time and time again in my life, like if you just put it out there, like what's the worst that can happen? They say, no, you don't hear back. Yeah. What's, you know? <laughs> yeah. So, so you were able to meet other people and bring in better models of desire into your life by intentionally going to places or, or putting yourself in a situation where you would meet more people that were like what you wanted to become. And then also cold emailing people like Tony Shea that, that, that allowed you to be in a situation where you could actually meet face to face with those who you admired in some way for their desires. Yeah. I think it's really important just, just for like growth, you know, developmental growth to always expose yourself, you know, put yourself in a position where you're exposed to, to different kinds of people. I live in like Washington, DC and it's like, you know, it's funny, like how, how much like people can just kind of insulate themselves in this, these like tiny little like political bubbles, you know? Mm -hmm. So I, I would say like this idea applies to like a, a lot of different areas of life, you know? If you're like a Democrat, you don't have a single Republican friend, like you should do something about that, right? Like or you, or you need to like put yourself in a position where you're exposed to people with different ideas. So yeah, I mean, that's just been a really important part of, of my life. And it's something that I've always tried to be really, really intentional about is um, I think we all have a tendency to just kind of retreat to whatever's most comfortable. In the startup world, it's, it's a very sort of like tight ecosystem, especially in Silicon Valley. And when you're in it, you just kind of like do the same things that everybody else does, go to the same places. And I think it takes like swimming upstream a little bit, right? And and not doing what comes easiest opens up all kinds of possibilities in life. Yeah, it's, it seems like ideas and, and ideologies have a weird interplay and a, a fascinating interplay with mimetic desire and not just politics, Democrat, Republican even think like, for example, I'll just say cold brew coffee versus hot coffee. There are people that want to have the cold brew coffee ideology. I believe in cold brew coffee. And then I'm also going to look for ways to make decisions that align myself with that ideology. And you have a desire to want to be seen as someone who loves cold brew coffee and drinks it and does all this stuff. And so the ideology of cold brew becomes a desire to be associated with that ideology. And then your actions can become influenced by the ideology. And they're good and bad parts of that. There, there are people and ideologies that are great to be a part of. And you might look to them in order to align your actions with. You may, you may look to certain ideologies and say, you know, this makes sense. I've studied it this this is something I want to be a part of. And then you have the other side where people may just see that that ideology has, it's like the trendy thing to, to think this right now. So I'm going to do things that will associate me with cold brew coffee rather than actually just like taking the time to, to think about it. And, you know, do I really want to, to be a part of this? Or there's some things 
I'm not going to make myself withholden to cold coffee. There's some things that I love about it. And there's some things that I love about hot coffee. And I'm going to mix those two with tea. And then I'm going to, you know, take a little bit from each. And I'm not necessarily going to define myself by any one type of thinking in general. Yeah, totally. I mean, ideas, some ideas are perennial and don't change. But many ideas are are like just like fashions. <laughs> they become fashionable and then they go out of fashion, like in a certain year, in a certain decade, sometimes even in a certain century. You know, like Freud, like was like super popular and, and his ideas were fashionable and now they're like really out of fashion. It's kind of like blase, like, oh, Freud, like we know a lot of that's been discredited. So, you know, we have to be really careful. Like we don't think of, because I basically what I'm saying is that things like ideas and, and fashion, these things could be mimetic too and heavily driven by mimetic desire and people's, people wanting to identify as a, as a certain kind of person that we have to be super careful. I'm fascinated at the relationship between what we want and and the effect that that has on knowledge. In other words, like what's what are the epistemological like implications of mimetic desire? Seems to me like when people really want something to be true, they only start looking for evidence or seeing evidence that supports what they want. So I think there's some weird I haven't quite figured it all out yet, but I definitely think that there's um, we can't divorce the will from the from the the, the mind, in other words, like our reason from our will. The two things are are connected and they affect one another. And I think this probably helps explain like things like conspiracy theories. You know, you just it's sort of like you start seeing the world like according to what you want and what you desire. And mm -hmm. I think mimesis uh, totally comes into play there. Yeah. One of the most fashionable ideas right now and fashionable institutions, whether you agree with it or not, is Bitcoin and, and cryptocurrency in general. And Rene Girard said that the, the most mimetic of all capitalistic institutions is the stock market. And so traditionally, people have kept cash and they've kept savings or they've also invested in stocks. And both of those things can be made more. So the government can print more money. You can come up with any come up with any idea you want and try to get someone to in, invest in it. There's no limit to the amount of startups you can create. But Bitcoin is interesting because there's only a certain amount of Bitcoins that will ever be in existence. And there are other types of cryptocurrencies that work like that, where there's a fixed model and the coin can become worth more. But the actual uh, the way that Bitcoin works is structured more in a way than, than cash or the stock market. Have you thought about mimetic desire and the, the recent rise of, of cryptocurrencies within the last decade and how those play off each other? Yeah. You know, I think if Rene Girard were alive today, he died in, in 2015, he'd probably say that the most mimetic institution is not the stock market. It's the cryptocurrency market. I think, I think he would probably update his, uh, his line yeah. there. So yeah, I, I think that crypto in general is, is like hyper mimetic. And I mean, I, I follow it not as closely as I'd like to, but, um, I, I have given some thought to that. And I mean, at the risk of like, of pissing off, uh, every Bitcoiner and, and Bitcoin maximalist out there. I think that there are some positive aspects to 
the cap on the number of bitcoins that can ever be mined mm-hmm. and will ever and will ever exist. Uh, because I think that the way that we print money right now through central banks is, is super problematic. Um, and so I'm all for that. I will say this, though, from the standpoint of mimetic theory, it seems that the fixed quantity would exacerbate mimetic rivalry because mm-hmm. there's, on, there's only a fixed amount. So like, in a sense, one of the things that capitalism does and, and, and being able to create more money does is it kind of like diffuses mimetic desire, if that makes sense, mm-hmm. because you can print more. So I think Bitcoin, maybe, um, I'm not necessarily making this prediction, but there might come a time when there's like some serious like Bitcoin wars going on because there's a fixed amount and it certainly drives the value up and up and up. And I guess that's maybe you know, as the value of Bitcoin rises, that will be just an indication of the mimetic desire for this scarce resource. But I wonder what happens when, I'm not quite sure. I'd have to, to think about that one for about a year and get back to you. But that's my, that's my initial thought. No, yeah, it's, it's uh, I'm not sure where I stand on it either in terms of the, the way that it affects desire and what I think is going to happen in the future. I have invested a, a small percentage of my net worth into Bitcoin, but I, I don't know what's going to happen. And the way that your book has introduced mimetic desire and the concept of mimetic desire into my knowledge base is making me think more and more about, okay, there are things that people desire and everything kind of gets supercharged for better or worse with scarcity. So if you, if I, I, I want to start a podcast, I am influenced by other podcasters in my space and probably the ones that are more like me. So smaller to mid tier podcasters are having more of an influence on my thinking than the, the celebrities like you talk about in the book, like Joe Rogan's not really having an effect on like the day to day of how I'm feeling. But if I see another podcaster that has a similar audience size, that's maybe doing an episode a week more than me or, or is uh, doing research in a different way that might cause me to be like, wait, am I, am I doing it the right way? But I can, there, there's no limit to the amount of podcasts that can be in existence uh, right now. So someone can always create another podcast. And so it's not really a scarce resource, but something like Bitcoin where people seem like they, the, the, the interest in Bitcoin has spiked recently and the supply is fixed at this certain amount. It's exciting and scary to think about what may happen in the future. Yeah, I agree. And I think that the, that the cap on the number of Bitcoins is its most important feature. And I think that's why other other currencies are kind of following in in step with that. So um, yeah, and, and you know, they're and they're going to become harder and harder to mine. And I think that that scarcity is driving a lot of mimetic desire for for Bitcoin. So you know, one of the the, the important points here, and you know, I, the the people that are actually the earliest adopters of 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 my book or basically or, or who are seeing the the biggest connections basically so far are people that are in like the in the investment community. Um I didn't actually see that coming. Um I wasn't sure, but it it's definitely people that that think seriously about investments because they're like, you know, 
the objective and fundamental analysis, like the kind they always try to do on CNBC, like trying trying to explain the rise or fall of an asset, like based on its cash flow and like basic fundamental metrics only gets you so far, right? It's like, they're like scratching their heads, like trying to explain like the crazy spike in Tesla in, in 2019, 2020. And just like, you, there, it just, if you don't understand that mimesis is real, then like you'll just never be able to kind of understand these these movements on the upside and on the downside. So I think it's just um, it's 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 a it's a mental model which, when paired with other mental models and ways of seeing the world, like adds this really important missing piece. And I think it's most apparent in in investments and in the markets. You mentioned the flywheel effect that Jim Collins talks about with business and you apply that to mimetic desire and the, the basic fundamentals of the concept is that you you can apply momentum and business and then depending on what sort of facet you're working on if you if you keep pushing that flywheel you keep pushing that aspect of the business and, and the business in general eventually it'll get to a point where momentum takes over and you don't have to push as hard to to make the wheel spin and eventually momentum takes over and so it's this whole kind of feedback of, of force and action and momentum and mimetic desire and the flywheel effect come together in an interesting way in the stock market because you can see the momentum of decision-making in real time with stock prices and how when it gets to a certain level, the, the price of the stock combined with the conversations people are having online and the just like the trendiness of the, the stock as well in real time, the more people start to talk about it, the more people desire it. There comes this point where the momentum seems to push a stock well above what the, the actual worth of the company may be. And once it gets to a certain point, it seems like the, you know, the rational investor argument no longer applies. You're not, you're not dealing with something rational. You're dealing with thousands and possibly millions of people making a decision based off of what other people want or what other people may be investing in or, or seeing certain things happen online. And and so it it is a, it's a fascinating mix of all those things kind of coming together, the flywheel, the, the, the mimetic desire and, and the stock market. Yeah. I mean, you get stocks that, I mean, the narratives are so important to, to the stock market. And, you know, there was a narrative that was, that was spreading like in the Wall Street Bets subreddit and stuff that a lot of people didn't know about until after the stock took off. And then you get, you know, the more people start talking about a stock, the more people desire to buy it. And that just, you know, fueled this crazy situation earlier this year, as you know. Mm-hmm. So it's almost like mimesis, like fuels mimesis. And I don't know if you're on Clubhouse or not, but I, I saw the same thing happening with, with the app. There were a bunch of people all got onto Clubhouse like around the same time as they kind of like opened things up super late last year, early, th- early this year. And there were like 
people on Clubhouse all just talking about Clubhouse. And it was like this like crazy rise. It seemed like everybody all of a sudden, I just look on it and it's like, well, everybody I know is now on Clubhouse. This happened in like three weeks. Yeah. Everybody was talking about it to the point where I was like, this is ridiculous. Like we're on Clubhouse talking about Clubhouse. Like, <laughs> and yeah. then, and then it just seemed to totally drop off. Like I haven't, I haven't used it in three months. So it was like this, like, it was like a stock to me like a stock that has like this meteoric rise that everybody's talking about. And, and then, you know, the momentum started to like swing in the other direction and people started to abandon it even faster than they, than they joined in some cases. So I don't know what the future is of that app. I got nothing against it, but I, I just have noticed a lot of mimetic desire, right. For, for, you know, various social media platforms. And, and it's like a key piece of why they take off or why they don't. Yeah, I, f I fell into the same thing with Clubhouse. I, I had heard a bunch of people talking about it online. I kind of felt this force pushing me into Clubhouse because of the connection with creators. Whereas like if you're a creator, you know, everyone's everyone else is on Clubhouse. Creativity is happening on Clubhouse. It seemed like everything around me was pushing me into Clubhouse. And then one of my favorite comedians, Tim Dillon, started talking about it on his podcast, The Tim Dillon Show. And he was saying how he was going into rooms with Eric Weinstein and, and all these other startup founders and just like making jokes, but also having real, uh, real conversations as well. And I was like, all right, if, if Tim Dillon is starting a room with Eric Weinstein or, or he like Elon Musk, they're the three moderators in a room. I, I, like I have to get on this app just to see what's going on. And I was on it for a little bit. And then like you, my fascination with the app and my time on the app declined rapidly to where I haven't used it in three or four months as well. And so I, I definitely felt the, the momentum of other people gathering me and, and pulling on me into the app where I felt this force of everyone flocking to it, got on it, saw some interesting discussions, heard some interesting things, and then kind of came out as quickly as it came into my life. And Gerard sort of had his initial insight into mimetic desire through, through reading classic literature. And he made this comment. He was like, you know, in Balzac or some of these great like French novels, he was like, uh, when like a fashionable kind of like high society woman in one of these novels is abandoned by one lover, like she's abandoned by all of them very quickly at the same time. It's almost like, you know, the, the, the first one loses interest and then everybody else like follows it in line, like falls right behind in, in losing interest. And it was kind of like that. I, I thought of that and laughed when I thought of Clubhouse. And it's like, well, like if Eric Weinstein's not on Clubhouse, then I have less reason. Like as people, yeah. as, as, as like you leave and, and other yeah. people leave, it, it like fuels the mimetic abandonment in a certain sense, right? Because like we're all models to one another and, and, you know, these things like move in waves. So like we're all, we're like a, like a flock of starlings in a sense. Like everybody's kind of like looking at what everybody else is doing and, and it's super reflexive. And that's what's so fascinating about mimetic desire. You know, sometimes it just takes like a couple of the right people to adopt something or a couple of the right people to abandon something. And, you know, it always affects more than just them. Yeah. The, the mimetic desire with dating is, is fascinating. And you mentioned uh, the, the Victorian lovers where if, a, if, a, if someone stops chasing a woman, then the other guy's may stop chasing a woman or, or lover as well. And looking back on my own dating experiences and, and experiences going out, 
in groups of guys, I definitely have noticed, and I can only speak from the the woman towards the the men interest, but I, I have noticed that guys, some of my friends who may not have had interest from women walking into the bar because a woman approaches them that is seen as attractive or desirable by the other women in the bar that causes more women to be interested in that guy. And I haven't really seen that returned in the same way from men to women. I don't see, for me at least, I I haven't seen a lot of guys surrounding a single woman in the bar and have had that peaked my interest if I don't find her attractive. If I find her attractive, I will approach her or, or I'll make plans to approach her regardless. But for women to men, it seems like other attractive women becoming interested in men piques the interest of other women in a way that isn't the same from the other direction. Yeah, that's an interesting perspective. I mean, I, I think I see that too. One area that it's definitely shown up in my life, and Gerard talks about the same thing, is like, if you break up with with somebody and you know and then 2 weeks later like you see that person with somebody who's who's and just seeming seeming like they're really happy and having a great time that can like somehow like change totally change the perception of 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 the person right um this other person just thinks they're the, they're the, the most beautiful greatest greatest person in the world you can start to like second guess yourself mm-hmm. right and it doesn't necessarily even matter who the person is right they've just become like a new model and can like draw us back to people sometimes. So almost everybody that I've talked to has had some kind of experience of that, right? I mean, got, got guys going in the other direction, which is a little bit different than the situation at the bar, right? But I think that we're definitely sort of care about what other people de- de- desire. And I think that definitely affects our perception of people. Like I remember like in, in, in high school, there was uh, like one girl that I was like considering like asking to like the prom or something like that. But it was like, like, why is anybody else asked her to the prom? <laughs> like, you know what I mean? Like it's, I mean, I feel, I feel terrible thinking that, but like, that's what was going through, you know, my little 17 year old head. So I was like, huh, like, I don't want to be like the only one, like, isn't there, like, doesn't she have some other interest or something like that? And like, I, you know, I didn't know about mimetic desire at the time, but I, I suspect that that was probably coming into my decision-making a little bit. Yeah, at the bar, it's different because it's more of a surface level, a surface level interaction. And from the the guy's perspective, if I see a woman is attractive, I want to approach her because she's attractive. And other guys going up to her doesn't necessarily switch my decision making process. Or if I find out something else about her, like she has a really good job for whatever reason, as a guy, I don't really take that into account until after the initial meeting. The the attractiveness is the most important thing to me in that moment. Whereas women seem they care more deeply about the connection and status in the initial meeting. So them seeing other women approach a guy or finding out that he has a really good job has more of a sway for that that service level bar meeting interaction. But I have had the experience where I break up with someone or they break up with me and then I'm checking their social media and I have to stop myself because it's it's affecting my well-being and it's affecting my decision making because I'm, you know, I, I see she went out somewhere or she started dating someone new and I have to stop myself and 
remind myself that this the only reason I, I I broke up with this person for this reason or this person broke up with me and that still applies just because I see them with someone else shouldn't make that reason void that 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 reason still exists. Totally. I mean, we can begin to project all kinds of things back into the past that 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 are not true based on our mimetic desire. Our memory is like a very fickle thing, you know, and we can like easily distort reality. Like I had, a, I had the exact same situation where I made a decision that I knew was the, was the right decision. It was the decision that I, that I had to make uh, and had to end a relationship. Like we weren't, we weren't moving towards marriage and, and I, I ended the relationship. I went off, I lived in Italy for a while and, you know, I, and I'm, I, I'm living in Italy and I'm like scrolling through things and just becoming like in, inflamed again with this desire. And I'm like, this is unhealthy. Like I, I can't know, I can't know anything that, uh, uh, that what she's up to right now. Like I'm not ready for that, you know, because I, I, I know I, I am 100% confident that I made the right decision back then, but now I'm doubting myself and it's, and it's, it's due to, it, it's, it's basically due to mimetic desire at this point in my life. I, I had, I was familiar with it. And being able to just like separate those two things gave me the perspective that I needed. And I was like, what's, what's really going on here, right? Like my, my will is being affected through seeing these models mm -hmm. of desire. And, um, and I did what I had to do, right, to create some distance there. Yeah. So, yeah, I mean, that, that's, that's an easy way. I mean, this, this plays out with all kinds of things like jobs and careers too. Very often happens that like if you have a bunch of people that are working in the same company or the same industry and they're all kind of miserable, it just takes like one person to leave and then pretty soon like a second and a third will follow, right? It's like, so I, like why, why companies yeah. are always like worried about somebody jumping ship because the, the real thing that they're worried about is like other people getting the same idea because they kind of know that that's the way that, that it works. Yeah, you, t you talk about the the stoning effect in the book and the same thing applies on social media where the person who throws the first stone is creating that model of desire and then the second person follows and then the third person throws and follows the second person and the, the, the fourth, fifth, everything after that is effortless. We've basically been where our desires are kind of these these stones for, for better or worse, where we, we cast a stone and the hardest thing to do is to cast a stone for something you want when no one else has, cause you're kind of looking around thinking no one else is doing this. Should I be doing this right now? And then all of a sudden someone else sees it and might join in. And then, you know, the, the eighth person who did it, maybe not, maybe isn't even sure why they did it. They just did it cause seven people also did it on Facebook or seven people left their job or decided to do something else. Totally. I mean, imagine, I mean, who was the first person to ever put out an episode of a podcast? Imagine what that must've been like. <laughs> yeah. I don't even know. I don't even know who that was, but like, imagine that, you know, like imagine how easy it is now, right? Like that must've been kind of a weird and scary thing to, to do, to be like the very first person, even the second and the third. Mm -hmm. um, I should, yeah. I should look into that. I wonder, I wonder who that was and when it was, but yeah, I mean, we just take it for granted, right? Like we've been doing this so long. We just take a lot of things in life for granted and we don't realize like how hard that first stone is no matter what we're talking about. You go through all this work to record a conversation. You have to get the equipment to do it. You do some research, you prepare some questions and topics, and then you have to release it out into the ether 
not even on a, a platform like Apple or Spotify, because they if you're the first person to do it, they don't have a, a set podcasting platform yet. You release some sort of audio file on a w- website or, or something and, and hope that people share it or maybe you email it out. And then you have to have the thought that people are willing to listen to an unfettered conversation for 30 minutes or three hours, however long you record it. And that precedent doesn't yet exist. And we know now in 2021 that people are definitely interested in listening to three hour long conversations if it's on something they like or they find it fascinating. But if you're the first person to do that, you almost have to have this bit of ego in you that says someone is going to find this interesting and they're going to listen to it, even though this hasn't happened yet and and there's no model for it so the the first person definitely the, the first person to put out some podcasts definitely had some some balls to say the least to you know to put in that work and then release it in whatever form that they did this is one of the reasons why um i one of the many hats that i wear is that i teach an introduction to entrepreneurship for undergrads mostly freshmen and one of the beautiful things about being an entrepreneur um, or just thinking like one is like you, you're, you're literally like creating new things in the world and creating new desires. And one of the reasons I'm a little bit, it's not that I think there's anything wrong with market research, but one of the reasons we have to like temper our fascination with market research is that it only measures like what already exists. If you would have put out market research or done a study, I don't know when podcasts came out, like, you know, 15 years ago or something like that and ask people if they wanted to listen to a two hour long mm-hmm. audio conversation. I think very many would have said, no, I don't have time for that. I don't want to do that. Um, and it wouldn't have been a reliable indicator. Okay. Like, it, so if you just would have like done that, like people don't necessarily know what they want, first of all, you know, like, unless, the, unless like something has been given to them, right? Like you, you create some new thing, let's call it like a, a, a podcasting medium. You put it out there into the world and it helps people discover like some new thing. And then they realize that they do want it. So it's, it's kind of like, you have to like take the first step and go out there and you can't necessarily count on, you know, you're, you're literally generating new desires in a sense that people didn't even realize that they had or whatever want to do. And that's like scary, but also like kind of cool that, you know, we can do that for good things. We can do that for, for bad things. And that's kind of the responsibility that any creator has you know, a musician who who puts out a song that like breaks all genres. It's, it's, it's totally different kind of like album or something. And, and, you know, maybe they'll be creating an entirely new genre that like 50 years from now, right. People will be like, this is rock and roll or something like that. And I think that's one of the coolest things about being any kind of creator. I, I wanted to get into a few of the most common criticisms of mimetic desire. Cause I, I think it would be good to, to bring up some of these things. And it'll also be helpful to me as I'm going through the book, because any criticism with a good response helps you formulate an argument or a a better understanding of the topic. And one of the most common criticisms of mimetic desire, the theory of mimetic desire is one that you just mentioned with marketing. And that came up at a few points where I, I searched mimetic desire criticisms against it. And and a lot of people ask the question, you know, how is mimetic desire different than marketing? Isn't it just like a fancy term for market research or, or getting people to want something? So for someone who thought 
in that vein, how would you describe to them the difference between marketing and the the theory and understanding of mimetic desire? I would say that there there's truth to that, you know, that argument, but it, marketing is is only one manifestation of mimetic desire, one very specific manifestation of mimetic desire. And you know, we've been talking on this podcast about like relationships and the stock market, things that that are not really marketing, right? Like romance and, you know, career choices and the decisions to move forward playing a sport and in the way that mimetic desire can affect some of those things. And, you know, those are not marketing things. So mm-hmm. I think like like marketing is just one one very specific aspect of, of mimetic desire. Mm-hmm. And mimetic desire, sometimes just naming something or having like words to describe what's going on is important. I think like once people un- like hear mimetic desire and understand what it is, they're like, oh, well, yeah, you know, I just, I just didn't have like the, the words to describe it. So that's one point. And I would say like, not everything is mimetic desire. So I think there are like mimetic desire, like maximalist out there that like, yeah. like it can only see the word through, th- world through mimesis and like everything's mimetic desire. And I don't believe that. And I think there are certain marketing tactics that don't work through mimetic desire. Many do. You know, mm-hmm. I mean, you, you, you'll notice like a lot of times the way that, that advertisers try to sell things is not by describing the thing itself. It, it's by showing you, you know, some celebrity or beautiful woman drinking this, the cola or whatever. Right. So that's, that, that's mimetic desire a little bit or appealing to some sense of identity or status. I'd also argue that that's, that's mimetic desire too. But then there are, there are other tactics that just sort of like are like appeal to, like dopamine hits, right? Like, I think like a lot of that's built into the way that social media is designed, right? Like things that like trigger certain responses, like the little red notification button. Mm-hmm. So that's not necessarily mimetic desire. I mean, that's just like triggering some response that's like deep seated in, in our physiology. So again, I mean, I think it's important that I think like mimetic desire operates on a spectrum. You know, some things are are have have are, are infused with more of it, and some things with less, and some things have nothing to do with mimetic desire at all. Yeah, that's an interesting distinction that there are processes that involve dopamine that keep you using something or that keep you on a certain app that aren't tied to what other people want. It's that you're getting this hit from getting a notification on Instagram. I know, I know what it feels like to to post a podcast or post something on Instagram and then you see all these notifications and you want to stay on the app until they start to to fade away and that and I'm not on the app because I know that other people also want Instagram or they also want to listen to the podcast I'm just getting these hits of this heart popping up and I'm thinking oh this this is good and that makes me want to stay on the app even longer yeah absolutely i mean that's 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 a powerful drug that has a lot to do with you know it's not i don't know if it's only on the sort of the material level um, that like it gives us dopamine hits, you know, there's also like some aspect of like affirmation, you know, uh, mm-hmm. which feels, feels really good. You know, like, ah, the little, the little heart's popping up again. Like people like what I posted. Mm-hmm. Yeah. There's, I mean, there's, there's a lot, we're, we're incredibly complex creatures, you know, Yeah. but I think mimetic desire is, is a good mental model. And I think I, we could talk about, there's, there's, there's several, um, I think important criticisms of mimetic desire, but that one, I, I think I would just say, like, ask yourself, like, can you see mimetic desire somewhere in, in, in marketing? 
And it, you know, it doesn't mean that that's the only thing that it's about, but I mean, I think certainly the fact that models have, have been such a part of the industry for such a long time says something about their implicit understanding mm-hmm. of the way that mimetic desire works. There's another criticism that's more of a criticism of Gerard than it is mimetic desire that came up a few times. And it's that Gerard is a, a practicing Roman Catholic, if I'm correct. And I was raised Catholic. I went to Catholic high school. And so for me, I I know how much of Catholicism relies on blind faith and relies on believing in the mystery. And there's also sometimes a, at least for me, when when I was learning about the Bible and, and going through school, there was this sense of questioning is, is no one specifically told me that asking questions was bad, but there were certain things that people just seemed perturbed by or seemed pissed off. If you were to ask a question about something in a story in the Bible or ask, you know, why do we do this? Or why, when we go to confession, we're not actually offered solutions to our problems, what we're told to say 10 Hail Marys and 10 Our Fathers and and things like that. And as a, as a Roman Catholic, I don't, I don't know if it's a criticism against Gerard, but for me, I'm definitely, I definitely have trouble now that I'm looking back on, I wouldn't say I'm a Catholic now. I would say I'm, I'm more in line as an atheist. I, I definitely have trouble or seem almost surprised by Gerard's questioning of his uh, generation of mimetic desire seems to come from there's a there's a missing space in what people want and there's a gap in desire and we don't yet have a full explanation for it and mimetic desire seems like a way and a theory that he had to fill that gap but in Catholicism so much of the gap in what we see is chalked up to it's the mystery of God or you have to have faith. So for me, I'm wondering, you know, what you think about Gerard's theory of mimetic desire as an offering to fill our understanding and deepen our understanding when in Roman Catholicism, that is not always the case. And in my experiencing, like deepening of your understanding can actually go against your faith. So Gerard was Roman Catholic and that's actually one of the reasons why I think he never made it outside or never became more well-known because that like a lot of academics held that against him and didn't take him seriously because of that. So I think we, you know, I think it's important to like take people's ideas as, as the, the ideas themselves and to not make it an ad hominem argument against the person, you know, and that's one of the things I'm trying to, I'm trying to help him out a little bit here with the book. The irony yeah. is that I'm, is that I'm also Catholic. That's, that's the funny part. So my experience was, was, is interesting in that I think I experienced some of what you experienced. And then like almost like many people do, I went away to college and totally uh, left it behind. And then I came back to it later in life with more of a, a more mature understanding of it and sort of realized like the place, the interplay between faith and reason and, and, you know, some of the you know, most brilliant scientists, like the guy that basically proposed the Big Bang Theory, Catholic. There's been many great scientific minds that also managed to be, you know, to, 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 to be able to, to combine that with a mature understanding of faith. I think what Gerard has done, um, and there are theological perspe- aspects to the work, 
like the scapegoat mechanism, right? So he's, I think he's done a great service actually. I think you can appreciate Girard without being a religious person at all, because he's, he's describing a human phenomenon. So I think you can appreciate, anybody can appreciate the thinking at that level. And I hope people don't hold his religion against him, but because he was writing for, for everybody at the same time, uh, if you, if you do, if you are interested in some of the theological applications of his thought, they're, they're there. And I think he made connections and sort of like deepened the relationship between faith and reason in a sense. I mean, and Girard actually said that his discovery of, of mimesis, uh, actually is what led him back to the church because it, it like filled in some like missing pieces for him. Like he mm-hmm. was able to understand like, what is sin? Well, maybe it's just like deviated desire or something like that. So, I mean, if you're, if for people that are interested in the theological aspects, they're there. So I think you can read mimetic theory and Girard at like a bunch of different levels. You read it at like, just here's a phenomenon in the world. You can connect it to, uh, to perennial philosophy. You can connect it to theology. And that's why I always say like, for people that are interested in learning more about it, it's like, well, what are you interested in? Like, if you're interested in like the theology of sacrifice, then there's a lot in Girard about that. And I'd recommend reading a book like Violence in the Sacred. If you have no interest in, in, in that, then there are really good insights about literature, like read his book, Deceit, Desire, and the Novel. So I, that's one of the reasons why I like Gerard is like there are a bunch of different layers to him and you kind of peel them back like an onion. And I think you just have to take the ideas on their own terms and you can go as deep as you want to go. What brought you back to the Catholic Church? Because I'm interested because I was in the same boat where I, I went to Catholic high school. I, I was raised Catholic and then I went to college and basically was like, you know, screw this shit. I'm going to do whatever I want and I don't want to feel guilty about it. And so I wasn't thinking about the church at all. And then within the past couple of years, I'm still an atheist, but I recognize this, the important sense of community that religion and, and the Catholic church in general provides, especially for people that may not be in an area like I am in Brooklyn, where I have tons of options to, to join communities. Someone in the Midwest may, that's where they see their friends. They go to church once a week. So I recognize the, the benefits of, and the structure and the sense of community that religion can bring for you. What was it that brought you back to Catholicism? Two main things. I think that I saw a few, I had a few people in my life, this goes back to the beginning of our conversation that just kind of like showed up in my life without me seeking them out. One was a lawyer and one was a priest. I just kind of like ran into these, these guys. And I would say that they're both incredibly, well, incredibly virtuous would be one way to say it, but I would dare say like, they, they struck me as being like, holy, if that makes sense. Right. Like, like they had like this real, like always cheerful, just like extremely charitable, good at what they did. It's like the lawyer was a fantastic lawyer, but he, but he was also just, he was a practicing Catholic. And I was like, oh, that kind of like messed me up a little bit. I'm like, huh. Right. Like, so there's like nothing more powerful than a powerful, like model of desire. And I'm like, ah, I I would, I would love to have. So that, that was, that was one thing. And then I think I I hadn't been exposed to the rigor of, of the Catholic intellectual tradition when I was in high school. I never heard that. And I, I, I dismissed it, I think a little, a little too easy. And then later in life, I went back and, and, you know, I mean, there's a 2000 year old, very, very rich intellectual tradition. And 
I, I probably just wasn't ready for it when I was in high school. But then later I, I met these people, I, I dove into it. I was able to make sense of it a lot, a lot more. I mean, it, this is a long journey for me, right? It wasn't like I read one, it's not like I read one book and all of a sudden everything made sense, but I gave it a chance as an adult. And I was like, well, let me, you know, there's some, some very smart people that have been Catholics over the years. And, uh, I I'm, I'm going to read them. And I also realized like, I'm a voracious reader. And I got to a point in my late twenties where I was like, I could tell you more about what like Tim Ferriss has written than I could tell you about the gospels. And I was like, it seems a little off. And I was like, I think I should go back and read the gospels. <laughs> it might've been just a, a poor time for me to be a Catholic, which is, you know, as a teenager, uh, you I, I wasn't really that interested in learning things outside of baseball. When I was a teenager, I wasn't interested in seeing ideas of face value. There are a lot of other hormones and adolescent anxieties that are running through you. So I was a, I was in the thickness of Catholicism when I wasn't really interested in learning about things and, and not on a deep level. And I didn't start becoming more interested in learning about things as a practice of developing curiosity until probably my early mid twenties where I was like, what do I actually want to learn about? And so I am open to learning more about Catholicism and religion in general, even if I don't become a, a practicing Catholic or I don't ever practice a religion again, I think it would be good to go back through things now and read what I read in high school or was supposed to read in high school and think critically about that I never did. And there are a few things that are definitely on my list to go back through and and read the Bible being one of them, just like going back through specific stories and asking myself, what can I take from this, even if I'm not going to practice it? Totally. Well, if you do go back and, and read anything, man, don't try to read from from the beginning to the end. That's a brutal process. Believe me, I've tried. Uh, you, you won't make it through numbers for sure. How did you start? How did you start your intellectual Catholic journey? when you said you got back to kind of the intellectual side of Catholicism, what for you, what was the starting point of that books or podcasts, anything? It was, uh, it was definitely not podcasts. They weren't very popular at the time. It was, it was just a lot, a lot of books. I don't know if I could tell you the first, um, few, I, I don't, I don't know if it was that clear, but, um, and also reading the gospels for sure. And then mm -hmm. I started just showing back up at mass, like feeling pretty uncomfortable, but just like showing up. And, um, it's funny, like you actually, I, I learned a lot just from that, right. Just from like going back as an adult and like trying to understand the liturgy itself. Yeah. I think it's important for like anybody, whether, you know, you're going to, if you're not religious at all, there's something to be said about having religious literacy period. Mm-hmm you know, our, our culture doesn't have it. Like I read the New York times and I'm like, their, their level of religious literacy is like at a fifth grade level. Usually like when I read things, it's like, you don't really understand. Yeah. Like I, I hate reading articles about the Catholic church. So I'm like, you know, you can't, like, you don't have to be Catholic in order to just be an intelligent, thoughtful adult that knows enough about the religion to be mm -hmm. able to speak about it intelligently. And I think that's like a duty that I have. Like mm -hmm. I should know about like the basic like history of like the Protestant Reformation and like why it happened and some basic things about other religions too. I think it's something that is, uh, you know, is part of, should be part of like, like people's basic like intellectual formation, right? Even if you don't want to go all the way. Yeah. I've read some 
people like Richard Dawkins or Sam Harris that have incredible intellectual liter or uh, religious literacy that argue against religion and and against things like Catholicism. And to be fair, if I'm going to read people that are religiously literate and arguing against religion, I should also mix some things in from people who are incredibly religiously religiously literate. <laughs> that is that is uh. The tongue twister, religiously literate, 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 <laughs> literate, yeah, religiously <laughs> literate, and using that power to argue why religion for, may yeah. be a good thing. Are you for religion? Yeah, 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 totally. Is there a favorite criticism that you like addressing about Gerard or mimetic desire? Something that comes up often that maybe you haven't even had a chance to think through fully yet, but is something that people often bring up to criticize mimetic desire? Hmm. That's a great question. Two of the two things that, that I've heard people say about wanting actually are like, it's, well, this is obvious. And also this doesn't apply to me. And the, both of those always make me laugh. Cause it's like, I say in the introduction to the book that you might think that this is obvious and you're, you're definitely going to think it doesn't apply to you. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Just read it in. So those are two criticisms that I've heard. I think in more of a general one is a criticism that, you know, it's just too, um, it's a theory of everything, right? It's like, it's a real sweeping theory that tries to do too much, right? It's like, tries to explain the, 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 the root of sacrifice and, and, and then try to, tries to explain why religions have tended to, to why violence and religion are, are often connected. That which has to do with sacrifice and the scapegoat mechanism tries to explain, you know, the the fundamental mechanism behind all human desire, and I think that's a fair criticism. And I think like the way that I would respond to that is, well, maybe Gerard didn't get everything right. <laughs> like, mm -hmm. I think that he he definitely got some things right. He may have got everything right, but you don't have to you don't have to buy all of it in order to appreciate mimesis and appreciate parts of what he's putting his finger on something that I think is definitely true. So that, you know, this goes back to our discussion about like the religious aspects and Gerard being Catholic and the theological stuff, like that might be hard to accept. Um, like chapter four of the book, I think you're reading right now is about, is about that and kind of like the revel the, the revelatory aspect of the crucifixion of Jesus and stuff. So I would say that that's, a, that's a fair criticism. He was a very big thinker and had a huge idea that he thought explained a lot of the world around him. But you you don't have to you don't have to wrap your mind around the whole thing in order to admit the truths that are in it. And that's this is like a general point that I think is important for all, for everybody. If you disagree with someone or something, you should be able to admit a part of what they're saying that might be true. Now this is true for like political opponents. It's true, you know, it, this could be true in discussions between somebody who's religious and somebody's not, somebody who's not. When you can sort of see something like, okay, well, so what are they saying that is true? If you can identify that, there's almost something true and in, 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 in almost, I mean, I don't like Nietzsche as a philosopher, but I think he had some true things that he said. I just think he got a lot wrong, but like I'm able to see, okay, this is true and I appreciate that without, you know, without necessarily like writing them off or something. Gerard passed away in 2015 and formulated most of his 
theory before the technological boom, it, it sounds like. And so maybe if he were alive today, some of the criticisms that people are offering, he might say, yeah, I, that is valid. Or you should be thinking about things differently now because of the way that our lives are more different. And he, just like anyone who, who comes up with anything, whether it's a theory or invention or app or, or a way of thinking, they're limited to the information that's available at the time. And so if you're going to, you may be offering a criticism that that person may also think to be true. They just aren't living in the world that you live in and you can use the things that you agree with and build upon it with the technology and information we have available now. Yeah. At the same time, you could almost say that social media really emerged after Gerard had kind of finished his career. He was alive and, 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 you know, in 2008, 2009, when things really started yeah. to take off, but he was very old. In a way, though, I feel like social media has actually validated uh, a lot of the things that he was talking about, right? And like showed like the power of mimesis, yeah. right? So it, it works both ways. Yeah, I'm, I'm guessing he wasn't an active participant on, on Twitter or Instagram <laughs> in the last decade of no. his life where you see like spending the last bits of his energy getting in, you know, Twitter battles with someone about mimetic desire. Thank God. No, I, I did hear that he was like a voracious reader of the newspapers and current events and like loved, like he was analog, man. <laughs> you just get the paper newspaper and read and was fascinated by current events and would it would like to see the way that like mimesis mimetic rivalries kind of played out in geopolitics and 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 the economy but unfortunately like those are probably just conversations that he had with his wife and his kids and his close friends and they haven't been uh documented in the twitter sphere or anywhere else for us to to see what he had to say about that stuff have you thought much about mimetic desire and it's its effect on evolution and kind of how it allowed humans to evolve to want the things that have brought to where we have today. I, I was listening to an interesting conversation between Lex Friedman and Dan Schmachtenberger, the founder of the Consilience Project. And they were talking about how our hardware is selected for software so that our genes have been the same for so long but one of the reasons why humans have been able to evolve is because we have loose software. We can grow our cultural understanding, our, our societal understanding. We figure out what's socially acceptable, what's not socially acceptable. And we can keep evolving with the same genes we've had for the last 50,000 years, more or less. And mimetic desire, Dan Schmachtenberger argues, is a part of a big part of our evolution where we can change our software based on desires that are being spread in society. What do you think about the relationship between evolution and mimetic desire? And is mimetic desire kind of like this thing that we needed as the first stage in our evolution that you could see maybe evolving into mimetic desire 2.0, like something different now that we've gone through the the technological evolution and in a lot of ways we're combining for technology combining with technology man i've had like a dozen people tell me i have to listen to that podcast with lex um i need to listen to it they're like dude he's talking about mimetic desire i'm glad lex is interested um 
Yeah. And so Gerard has a whole chapter in his book, Things Hidden from, Since the Foundation of the World, where he talks about the relationship between mimetic desire and evolution. He talks about the process of what he calls hominization and, and how mimetic desire was probably sort of present at the birth of what we now know as Homo sapiens and, and is what sort of separated us from, from our ancestors, kind of like the, the, the birth of desire. Um, desire is kind of a uniquely human trait, like animals have instincts. They don't tend to like converge on like abstract desires like, like we do. So it's, it's, it's actually this very complex, but I think it definitely played a role. Gerard also talks about it in, his, in one of his later books, last books called Evolution and Conversion. So if anybody's interested in that topic, I would recommend reading those, but certainly um, played a huge role and not just mimetic desire itself, but Gerard talks a lot about well, mimetic desire is why we have culture. I mean, culture is is formed through imitation. And, you know, we wouldn't be able to build culture if it weren't for mimetic desire. But he also talks about the role of violence in human societies and how we sort of like invented a social technology at like the dawn of man. Think about the beginning of 2001, A Space Odyssey, where, you know, you've got like the 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 the, the one ape sort of like realizes that the bone could be used as a weapon and kills another one because they were they had been caught in a mimetic rivalry over scarce resource this little pool of water and he kills the other one and it's kind of like this sacrificial thing that ends up forming the basis of culture so gerard says that like the scapegoat mechanism like humans sacrificing either another human or an animal or whatever is the foundation of of human culture um and he says like there's a founding murder at like the at the beginning of human culture and it's actually like one of the things that has separated us from the animals. So that is a rabbit hole that we, I don't think we have time to go to go down. But yeah. um, but but so it's more than just mimetic desire, right? It's like the, it's yeah. it's conflict. It's the scapegoat mechanism, and those things continue to to be perpetuated. Yeah, it, it is uniquely human, and those things that allowed us to evolve, like the scapegoat mechanism, and and are a part of any culture's evolution going back to hundreds of thousands of years ago, that looks like it's a human thing. You, you don't see a lot of animals doing these ritualistic sacrifices or, or caring about on a deep level what other animals want. It seems like it's the, the majority of it is instinctual. And, and, and so it's, I went down the, the rabbit hole of, uh, of grizzly bear attacks recently. And, um, my girlfriend actually had an, an encounter with a, a bear while she was hiking. Nothing, nothing happened. Thank God, no charge or anything. But then I, I started to go down, you know, what, what does it look like when a grizzly bear charges someone or, or does a false charge? And, and it wasn't a grizzly bear. I think it was a, a black bear that my girlfriend saw. And, there are these like instinctual responses in grizzly bears where you see kind of like, the deadness in its eyes on an up close video where it's not thinking about what it wants, or it's not thinking about the fact that other grizzlies attack humans is the reason why I'm also going to attack a human or, or charge a human, or I'm going to do it three times instead of twice. And my cub is here or, so, or something like that. It, it seems like it's just like this world of this world that we've removed ourselves from with technology 
and also mimetic desire, a big part of why we were, were able to develop te- that technology. But like this whole world of nature and instincts is still out there and it still drives a huge part of the world that, that most people aren't an active part about. So it's, it's, it's wild to think about. Yeah. And another interesting aspect, you know, in, in ways that were different, like animals all have a dominance hierarchy and with humans, right. I mean, a dominance hierarchy that plays itself out with, you know, the physicality of the animal and the aggression and stuff like that. And they, sometimes they have to fight, but with, with humans, right. Where so much of the world is abstract and we have so many like different forms of expression, basically what Gerard would say this is my interpretation and translation of Gerard. I don't think he ever specifically talked about it in this way, but we don't have a fixed, a fixed dominant dominance hierarchy the way that animals do. Like once it's established, it's kind of fixed. Humans, because of mimetic desire, because we can take different people as models as we move in and out of environments, we have like fluid and dynamic, like dominance hierarchies that that come and go that are constituted through like mimetic desire and mimetic rivalries and they, and they change all of the time. They're not fixed. So there's like really fascinating implications here if you're interested in, evo- in evolution mm-hmm. and, and why, you know, mimesis is a peculiar, pe- peculiarly, I should just not even try to say that word, man. <laughs> yeah. We're, we're both uh, getting tongue tied. You stumbled and now I'm getting tongue tied. We're trying to say <laughs> yeah. really hard words here, yeah. um, but it is a uniquely uh, human characteristic for sure. Yeah. So I, I wanted to end off on the the connection of mimetic desire and love. You had a tweet recently where you said a lot of conversations about Gerard get bogged down in heady intellectualism. Everyone trying to signal that they're smarter than the other listeners or even their interlocutor. And it's shocking how easily the role of love, the most mimetic thing of all, is lost. And so listeners can tell me, you know, how how much of a good job I've done by uh, trying to seem smart. Let me know if I seem smart in the comments. How do you see mimetic desire and love interplay? What does mimetic desire look like when it mixes with love? What, what, what are, what is mimetic desire at its best in, in loving relationships or loving interactions? How, how does it come together with love to, to spread loving interactions in, in society, which I would argue are, you know, going to be a very important part in why we stay around. If we do stay around for a very long time, I would, I would argue that love has to be a huge part of that. What, what do you see when you look at love and mimetic desire and think about how those two come together? Love is the, the highest manifestation of desire. It's kind of like the end goal of desire. I mean, lo- love is in a way, you could almost say that love is just another word for desire. We do what we want or we do what we love. You could almost think of addiction like that. Like if you're, if you're like addicted to a certain kind of drug in one sense, you could say that like you, you, you love that or you, at one point you just, you just loved it in a certain sense more than you loved the alternative. So I think there's a deep connection between de- desire and love. And in a human relationship, love is mimetic. When we are deeply loved, um, we, we tend to open ourselves up and, 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 and love others and vice versa. So love, love is like we, you know, I've been stressing this whole podcast that, you know, mimetic desire can be a very positive thing. And in a relationship between, you know, uh, between two partners, between a, a married couple, love is mimetic. And at its best, that, that, 
we want the love that we have with another person to be fueled by mimesis in the most positive sense of the word, almost like, uh, like outdoing one another in love. That's something that that's where mimetic desire, like never will, will not have like a, like a bad ending, right? It's kind of like an infinite loop of, of, of mimetic love. And I, and I look at just little ways that like, I, I incorporate that into my life with my fiance, soon to be wife in three weeks. You know, we cook each other like dinner, usually, you know, a couple of nights a week. And it's kind of like a mimetic, you know, game of love that we have with each other. And, you know, we, we look at like other little things that we can do to incorporate that. And one way too to think of it is like taking that, casting that first stone of love, you know, as we talked about earlier, is also mimetic. So rather than the instinctual response to you're unkind to me or say an unkind word, so I respond back. That's our instinctual response. It's like when we get a passive aggressive email or something like that, we want to respond in kind. But like flipping that cycle, it's almost like flipping a switch. And love, love to me means making a, a self-gift, means like making a gift of myself. And I think if we did that, right, um, I know Lex Friedman is super interested in that. He talks about love all the time. And I think if we, if we did that, and we found a way to encourage and incentivize that, then that could become mimetic. And I think we have to figure that out as a, as a species, because if, if we, when one of the things I was thinking when I made that tweet is like, we can talk about this stuff all day long, but I'm interested in behaviors and changed behaviors and not just the intellectual discussion, because unless there are changed behaviors and unless mimetic desire is used as a force for good, then we're in trouble. Definitely check out the the conversation with Lex and Dan Schmachtenberger and, and check out the one with Brett Weinstein that he just had. If you're interested in, in love and kind of like it's, it's application, which mimetic desire sounds like it's, it's going to be a huge part of the practical application for love. Brett Weinstein talks about the fourth frontier and how everything up to this point with, uh, after the technological boom has been, focused on growth. And so uh, most things are, are profit-driven, growth-driven, and, and we want to grow, but our society also relies on growth. And that if we are to get past this point, if, if we're going to continue to evolve as a species, Brett argues that we need to get to a point where we want to grow, but we don't rely on growth, that, that profit isn't the underlying function of society that that we care about beauty compassion and having purpose and even if we're not growing we we won't compromise that in order to like continue continue the, that capitalistic growth trajectory not that all capitalism bad is bad or anything like that just that like we we're at a point where everything is so growth driven and if something's not growing then there's a problem and that has to be the focus and so mimetic desire and love seem like it has to be part of that fourth frontier if we ever do get to it where people are doing loving acts and sending signals across the planet that love is something that I care about and I want it and I want to act this way towards other people. And I care about things like beauty and long-term fulfillment and acting in a loving way towards people. And that is something I value. And if enough people do that, then that kind of flips the momentum to where maybe people are willing to not 
grow in order to uh, like grow uh, financially in order to grow lovingly where, where there's a point we can get to where we don't necessarily rely on the constant growth of society. I agree. And, you know, I think there's, I think Peter Thiel would sort of argue, and this is the, the a lot of people are arguing that like, unless our, unless we just continue to grow at a certain rate, then we're in trouble because without growth, like everybody will just like turn on each other basically. And we'll just be competing for scarce resources. So we have to constantly be creating. So there's like this engine that we have to keep fueling. And I think that it's, it's, it's fine to do that, but I don't think we should be reliant on that. Like totally, totally reliant on it because then we sort of become a slave to a certain kind of a system. So I think we, we do have to find a better way. I mean, one way to think about it is like, What's the difference between wealth and money? You know, they're not the same thing, even though people equate them. Like if I, you know, if I have like, for me personally, if I have a loving family and a home and safety, like I am wealthy, like that's, that's, um, that's my Mm -hmm. wealth. Like the only reason that I, 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 I seek like more and more and more is probably due to mimetic desire, like the, the, the unhealthy kind of mimetic desire. Like, why do I need a certain amount of money in my bank account? So I, I, yeah, we're going to have to like flip, flip some kind of a, there's got to be a flippening and it's going to have to happen at some point or else we're, we're going to continue a, this kind of like never ending, like infinite game. And like, when are we going to be like happy and want what we have in a sense, like wanting yeah. what we have is probably the way that I would put it. And there are certain things that we have that we don't desire <laughs> and, and we yeah. need to learn how to desire. That's a good point. Wealth and money aren't the same thing and I don't have a lot of money but I but I feel wealthy in a lot of aspects of my life and because I feel wealthy with things like freedom and family and friends and podcasting being able to talk to people like yourself that makes me want to act more lovingly towards other people because I feel that there are m- many areas in my life that are bountiful in ways that aren't the numbers in my bank account that, that me feeling wealthy makes me want to act better towards other people. Absolutely. And you could have all the money in the world and, and be in the middle of Antarctica and you would, you know, it wouldn't matter because there'd be nothing to buy. Right. And, you know, you could have no money and have, I mean, basically I, I just think like people, people need to understand that money is not what you want. What you want is wealth. And when I say wealth, I don't mean, monetary wealth. I mean, the, the, the things that you really most deeply want. And if, if you're able to separate the two, I think you gain some perspective on, on the role of money, right? Money is just kind of a way to exchange things. Sometimes it can, it can, it can help us, you know, attain things that we need, but it's not the measure of, it's not the measure of, of real wealth. So I I hope, uh, I hope more people kind of have the perspective that you do. Well, that's a perspective that is definitely not perfect. I find myself fluctuating in and out of thinking that, you know, my life is shittier than it actually is to feeling overwhelmingly grateful. And a lot of people go through that same thing. And and, and speaking of wealth and money, you should spend some of your money on Luke's book, Wanting, to increase your wealth of knowledge. And so where can people find the book? Where can they follow you? You also have a newsletter, Mimetic Mondays that I'm subscribed to. So, so where can everyone, where can people get the book and and where can they follow your work? Oh, thanks, man. 
you can buy the book anywhere you like to buy books. Hope, hopefully your local bookstore has it. Otherwise, there's always uh, online, Amazon, LukeBurgess.com. So I publish a, a little newsletter every Monday and I have a Substack as well called Anti-Mimetic, where a lot of stuff that didn't make it into the book, not because it's not important, it's just I had a word count. <laughs> I publish on my Substack and uh, I'm going to, over the next couple of years, I'm going to try to connect the topics in the book with things going on in the world and, and really try to try to make it as relatable as possible. Thank you for your time, Luke. I, I really appreciate it. I gained a lot of insight and hopefully uh, I can convert that insight into wisdom for future decision-making from this discussion. And I hope listeners feel the same as well and go check out the book and sign up for the newsletter as well. And, and uh, thank you again. I really do appreciate your time. Thanks, Zach. I really enjoyed it. Thank you guys for listening to another episode. You can go to auxoro.supercast.tech today to gain access to two bonus episodes per month of the Aux podcast on topics like Bruce Lee, COVID lab leak, Bitcoin, and more. You'll also get full video versions of the Auxoro podcast available nowhere else. Go to auxoro.supercast.tech today to become a premium subscriber. See you next time.